Okay. Hmm. Hi, everyone. Good evening. So I thought we'd start by having a good substantial sitting, um, maybe till about eight o'clock. And then I'll uh, talk a little bit about um, the issues raised by the readings I shared, which you do not have to have read to make sense of tonight. Um, but the Harper's piece on the psychological risks of meditation and um, Joko Beck's piece on the risks of pushing for enlightenment experiences. Um, Good people are still dropping in. All right, good. All right, let's get going. So um, thought we'd keep it really simple and um, basic tonight. And I think for the first 10 or so minutes, we'll just do straight breath following. And then um, move to just add one more anchor after 10 or so minutes, um, sounds or another spot on the body. Um, so I'll, I'll give you those cues when it's time, but just to give you a sense of what this sitting period will be like. So, um, so please get in a comfortable position, one in which the back is erect, but not rigid or tight. And position in which the front side is soft and open enough for the breath to move as freely as possible, given whatever tension you may habitually carry in your body or maybe carrying at this moment. So um, it may not be free and loose right now, the breath. That's okay. But just be in an upright posture so that the breath has the ability to open up if it wants to. Let's begin by taking a moment to scan the body. Feel in particular the sensations where your body is making contact with something that's supporting your weight, the seat, cushion, whatever it is beneath you. If you're touching the ground, feel the contact your body is making with the ground beneath you. Feel the quality of the air in the room you're in on whatever skin is exposed on your body. Tune in for a bit to whatever sounds there might be in the space around you as well.
We'll begin following the breath in the nose just in just a bit. But before we focus our awareness on the sensations in the nose, let's just feel the breath, you know, in other parts of the body first for a bit. So in the lower back, can you feel any movement associated with the breath in the muscles of the lower back? Sometimes we stiffen the muscles in the lower back unnecessarily, which actually constricts the breath a bit. So just checking on these muscles can be all the reminder we need that, oh, I don't need to hold that tension there. Perhaps the breath can be allowed, given space to move even into this lower part of my torso. Swinging around to the front side of the body. How does the breath feel in the lower belly? Please don't manipulate the breath. No need to control or alter it. If the breath isn't moving the lower belly much, that's okay. It's not a right way to breathe. Just notice if there's any movement to lower belly, how much, what it feels like. As may have happened with the lower back, sometimes just checking just being aware of how a place like the belly feels may alter how the belly holds itself. And if that happens, then just notice that. And of course, if not, just notice that too. Let's move up to the center of the chest, the breastbone, sternum area, and just feel the sensations that are there associated with the rise and fall of the chest as you breathe. Do you feel any tension? Any tenderness? Any warmth? Just notice. Now let's swing around to the back side and Feel the area around the shoulder blades and between the shoulder blades. 
as air moves in and out of the body. Can you feel any movement in this area in the upper back? And at last, let's settle our awareness in the inside of the nose. Just park your awareness in the soft tissue and the inside of your nostrils and feel the sensations produced there as you breathe in and out. For the purposes of the practice tonight, I would encourage you not to worry too much about labeling thoughts. If a thought really hooks you and you feel like you need some space from it to be able to return to the breath, then perhaps use a label, note it, whatever works for you. But when you notice that you're thinking, just bring your awareness back to the breath tonight. Tonight's an opportunity to focus a little bit more on just concentration just pure breath following. Gradually, see how fine-grained your awareness of the sensations of the breath can become. At first, your awareness will be somewhat cursory, superficial, but can you begin to notice ever more detail, the variations of the sensations throughout the course of each in-breath and out-breath? Can you be aware continuously 
of the sensations throughout entire inhalation and exhalation. The mind will carry away, just each time it does, gently come back to the breath and rest ever more deeply in the sensations of the breath. If you feel that you have a pretty steady focus on the breath, the mind is subtle enough 
that you can stay with the breath pretty consistently. And try adding a second anchor, whether that be sensations in your hands or the sounds in the space around you. But if the mind is having trouble just staying with the first anchor of the breath, just stick with that for the rest of the practice period. There's no rush. Where is your mind right now? If you are lost in thought, come back to the present moment, come back to your breath.
We have just two more minutes left in this period. Just stay with the breath. And if you have another anchor, stay with that. Okay, feel free to move slowly, slowly open your eyes, reconnect with the space around you. So before I begin speaking, I um, invite you to just gather your thoughts about the topic for tonight's class. And if you've read either or both of the pieces that I sent out, do you have any questions about those? I'm not gonna ask for them now, but I just, um, before I start speaking, I think it might be good for you to, to just reflect. And is there something that you would like to ask about, talk about so that it doesn't get sort of forgotten. Um, and, it, and if you haven't read the pieces, it's okay. Just like, is there something that, um, that when you hear about this topic, the psychological risks of meditation practice that, you know, you would like to hear something about? Um, I'm not guaranteeing there'll be time, um, but there might be. So um, it's really hard to know exactly how to begin. It's a really, it's a topic I care a lot about. Um, I've been giving a lot of thought to this, I think especially since I started teaching meditation at Williams. Um, and I think also teaching meditation in this time, 
2021. Um, it's it's really interesting to to think about and to feel the differences about how meditation is approached and talked about and marketed now. Um, from the time I started practicing. So I moved to a Buddhist temple when I was in 1989. Um, and I had been looking seriously into meditation traditions and practices for the two or three years prior to that. So, you know, mid eighties is really when I was um, getting into this. And it was um, already commodified enough, Eastern traditions were already commodified enough that it was very easy to find new age crystal shops, you know, all around. Um, but you still had to buy books um, and you had to find teachers. Um, and, um, and I think um, especially in the United States, I don't know, maybe it's not, we've always, spiritual entrepreneurs, let me put it that way, are not new. Um, we have a long and old tradition of people um, promising different kinds of great awakenings, right? Um, so, um, but I think it is unprecedented how um, meditation is being sold now. Um, I don't know if any of you guys read the Harper's piece, but um, uh, I think um, Headspace is has a market capital value of a billion dollars. Um, uh, and that's just one of the apps, right? And there are many, many different apps that are on the market. And those just apps. Now, you might think that by my saying this, I'm judging these apps and this, the, the market around meditation. And actually I'm not, um, I'm, a, I, I'm sort of just open-minded about them and the role they're going to play. They're playing now and they're going to play in the, the, the future of meditation practice in the United States. Um, I think that there are a lot of different ways into serious practice. And I think for a lot of people that are gonna find their way to meditation through the use of an app or something else like that. And that's all fine and good. I have a former student, um, Ava Breitenbach, who works for 10% Happier as a product manager. And she kindly gave me, my students in my class in the fall, free subscriptions to the app 10% Happier. And I like that app because it has really good teachers. Um, and she said something which really stuck with me, which is she thinks that, you know, apps are gonna play a really important role in the future of meditation in the United States because it's just, there are not enough teachers to go around. Um, and um, how are you gonna introduce the mass of people who want meditation practice to it? Um, and, um, and that made some sense to me. It's like, yeah, it's like, if we really are serious about the benefits of this practice, then it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't sit right with me that we'd be snooty about 
um, about these kinds of, of um, avenues in. Um, and I'm not. But I think that um, one huge difference beyond just the kind of scale of the selling of meditation now from when I first sought it out in the mid eighties is the domination of the term mental health in the way meditation is framed and sold. Um, honestly, when I actually um, moved to Zen Center, uh, I'm not even, I don't think a single person I met there was there for mental health reasons. Um, and I don't think I actually remember almost anyone I talked to during my time there who um, sought out meditation practice for mental health reasons. Um, it was a spiritual tradition that we were looking for. And I think um, the ways in which the discourse of mental health has come to dominate how people think about the purpose of meditation practice is I think one of the most important consequential transformations in how we understand what it is. Um, and if we think that meditation is for the sake of mental health, then of course, um, a, a story that is about the psychological risks of meditation practice is going to seem um, really profound. You know, like, um, like, oh my God, this thing that everyone's been selling as like good for you actually may not be, you know? Um, and so, you know, you get the, first of all, I don't actually like this Harper's piece. I didn't, I didn't share it because I, I liked it. I think what he's talking about is important. But I think there's something like obviously kind of superficial and sensational about the way he describes everything, right? It's like, oh my God, let me like take off the emperor's clothes or show that he doesn't have any clothes and you know, all this stuff. Um, so, um, but, what, but I wouldn't have shared it if I didn't think what he was talking about really mattered. I'm not talking about it now in order to actually take it down, not at all. But what I'm saying is that the very tone of it, like, by the way, this could be dangerous for you. For him to even assume that that is going to hook a reader, um, and uh, and um, make people really rethink what meditation is, really says a lot about how people think about it right now, right? And I think he's right. Um, it would be so interesting to, to to see the stats on how many people have checked out that Harper's piece. I have a feeling a lot of people have. Um, So if you think about meditation as a spiritual practice, first and foremost, that may or may not have mental health benefits, right? You know, may have calming effects, may help you with stress, things like that. Um, then, the kinds of challenges that he's talking about, not what happened to Megan. I want to, I'm going to say a little bit more about that particular very sad case in a minute. She went to a 10 day, for those who didn't read it, she went to a 10 day Goenka retreat. 
Um, I have a feeling it was the first retreat she'd ever done. She had a little bit of experience with meditation, it sounds like, but she went to the Goenka retreat thinking it'd be a nice restorative thing to do while beginning the next chapter of her life. Anyone who goes to a Goenka retreat thinking it's going to be like nice and like, like something like a, a spiritual spa experience already really doesn't know what they're getting into, you know, and that, that also is, is, a, is a red flag. Um, so, I mean, I love it when people, I tell, tell people like, you know, not people in this group, but people, you know, I'm going to like a seven day retreat, you know, um, and like, oh, that sounds so nice. Like, you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll see you. <laughs> um, so, um, so anyway, she she goes to retreat and actually is like total trooper. You know, I think one of the things I'm most impressed by, and actually was maybe part of what why Megan has such a terrible outcome, is because she was such a good kid. She did exactly what she was supposed to do. You know, I've known a lot of people go on 10 day going retreats who don't follow the rules, you know, who go and then, you know, they don't sit all the time. They do yoga when they want need to relax. You know, they do, they, they just take, they, they know how to cut themselves some slack um, and not, not let the intensity get as high as it looks like Megan did. Megan literally followed all the directions for 10 days. Um, you know, when the teacher said, no, no, just keep following your breath. I think she did. You know, fall, you know, be aware of your sensations. She did. And she had a really profound experience. Um, but I think that, um, and then she kind of like didn't have, I think the best way of making, describing what happened, because I think her sister is really is, is beautiful the way her sister says, I don't want to say that she had a psychotic break. Um, based on this experience. And she, by the way, she, she killed herself before the end of the article. Um, and, um, and her sister says, I think in this really beautiful way, like I wanna honor the way that she understood what was happening to her. And she thought that she was undergoing a spiritual crisis. And so she didn't want to say that my sister just had a, a psychotic episode. And, um, and became suicidal because of that. Um, but I think that what's very clear from the way her experience is described is that there was just a kind of atrocious absence of proper framing of what she was doing there and what she was experiencing, both before, during, and after. Um, when she was experiencing really difficult episodes during the retreat, the teachers just said, keep following your breath. Um, you know, um, and, and then afterwards didn't stay in contact with her to help her integrate the experience, you know? Um, and I'm just thinking like, how could they have let that happen, you know? Um, so um, I think people do have, you know, I think people do have psychological breakdowns during retreats. And it's actually one of the reasons why all retreat centers that have any good reputation will screen people before they let them attend. Zen Center San Diego, where I did my sessions, 
would ask people about their psychological histories and um, not permit people who were at risk of psychotic breaks or have had episodes like that from doing retreats um, because it's a recognized possibility, you know? Um, so, um, but when you are there, there is a constant attention to how people are doing. And then like almost daily conversation about how, what your experience is like. Um, and when things get as intense as they did get for Megan, um, and first of all, Megan shouldn't have been there in the first place. You know, you don't just dump it. You don't jump into a 10 day retreat like that as your first taste, you know, of serious practice. Um, you, you tell people to take, take your gas off the pedal, you know, go for a walk, stop sitting, you know, let's just, let's, let's, let's just talk for a bit and relax. Um, there are all sorts of ways of making sure the intensity doesn't get too high. If you are attentive to the genuine risks of the practice now, okay. I'm sort of over here in the mental health domain, but I actually want to, you know, go back to the spiritual practice side or way of looking at this. And, you know, if you think of um, Buddhism and meditation practice in particular as a spiritual path, then I think you're kind of actually kind of assume that there's going to be an ordeal-like quality at some point along the way. No one embarks on a spiritual quest without thinking that at some point along the way, there's going to be some heavy, dark stuff, you know. Um, You know, you don't, you know, when, when um, native peoples do things like vision quests, do they think it's going to be restorative and pleasant? You know, no, you think it's going to bring you to something like the experience of death, you know, and it's going to carry you through with proper guidance into some other kind of, you know, renewed life, rebirth. Um, and I think people who are serious about meditation practice understand this, that the challenges are not accidental and are not avoidable, you know, that in a way it is meant to actually be like a crucible in which, as Joko Beck puts it, you part, you know, slowly you give up aspects of yourself so you can see who you are beyond the small ego that we usually identify with, you know, and I think if anyone who sat for a little while knows anything is that the ego does not want to give up its purchase on us, you know. Um, now, that doesn't mean that it has to be a crisis. You know, it doesn't mean that it has to be um, dangerous. Um, and I think this is where I think the intensity of what Megan went through is what's so problematic. Um, I think knowing that the ego is going to resist the practice, it's kind of what it's there for, right? It's to hold on to itself. I mean, that's like, it's doing its job. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but knowing that, then I think you take care in how you approach that work. So um, I wanna read just the first few paragraphs 
of Joko Beck's chapter, which I don't think many people in the group checked out, which makes sense. This isn't a class. <laughs> I mean, I'm not expecting people to do homework, but I just want to share. And I thought, um, so um, it, it's just a few paragraphs and it's great. Joko is so good. She's so down to earth. She's so badass. And um, I love the way she just is so straight about what practice is about. And she came from a tradition where it was super intense, where it was koan training, you know, training like koans with like moo, like what is moo? And people practicing nonstop all night, you know, sitting full lotus for hours at a stretch in order to precipitate these breakthrough experiences and to get a taste of what it's like to be awake for a bit. Um, and she did that. And other friends I've had did that. Um, and she came to realize that there are two big problems with that. One is that that kind of rapid breakthrough of the ego structures can actually give you a taste of something wondrous, but actually like all those problematic ego structures that you kind of blew through, just reconstitute themselves once you make it through that experience. So yeah, you get a taste of this like bigger self, like, you know, the image you use the sky, you get a sense that you're the sky and not just the clouds and all that, right? And then you just realize, oh, I just start believing I'm just the clouds again. I start doing all my like little egocentric stuff again. And, but now maybe even with the bigger ego, because I've had a taste of this cool thing, right? Um, so that's one possibility, which isn't so good. And the other possibility is even worse, which is that actually you blow through the ego too fast and actually something bad happens like what happened to Megan, you know. Um, for those of you who've had experience with psychedelics, I think there are a lot of instructive parallels here um, with, you know, you can have wondrous experiences of ego dissolution or ego death on psychedelics, um, but the ego reconstitutes itself, you know, afterwards. Um, and then also sometimes you're not ready for what that's going to do to you and it can produce long-term negative consequences to the stability of the self, you know, where you actually start to have long-term psychological problems because you rushed it, it was too much. So, um, so in case that is a framework that is illuminating for some of you, I just wanna throw that out there. I think there's a lot of interesting parallels here about the benefits and the risks of pushing for ego dissolution too quickly. But this is the way Joko describes enlightenment and practice, okay, and the risks of practice. So it's a chapter called Pushing for Enlightened Experiences. I'm gonna read a bit, but not too much, so don't worry, I'm not reading the whole chapter, it's just like a little, um, just a bit though. One of my favorite lines in the Shoyo Roku says, on the withered tree, a flower blooms. When all human grasping and human need are ended, there is wisdom and compassion. This is the state of a Buddha. Personally, I doubt that there ever was a person who completely realized this state, or perhaps there have been a few in the history of humankind, but we confuse people who have great power and insight with the reality of a completely enlightened Buddha. So let's look at what that process of becoming a Buddha might be working backwards. For this fully enlightened and perhaps hypothetical being, there would be no boundaries. There would be nothing in the universe about which such a being could not say without qualification, namu daibosa, unite with great enlightened being. You and I cannot say this truly for everything. All we can do is extend our ability to do so 
But a Buddha would be one who could say that, who could be united without barrier or boundaries with everything in the universe. Now, before such complete enlightenment, there's a state of a fully integrated person. Of course, for this person, there are still boundaries, limitations. There is, so there is some place where that integration fails. Nonetheless, that's what you might call mind-body integration. Wonderful and rare. Most of us are in some of the stages leading up to that, which means we cannot own even our own bodies completely. Any tension in the body means that we cannot own it. We won't say that we are a body, but that we have a body. And then there's a state before that. Oh, sorry. And then there's a state before that when we completely disown the body, thinking we're just a mind. And there's a state before that in which we cannot even own all of our own mind. We split some of that off as well. Depending on what our conditioning is right now, we can just see so much and we can embrace just so much. The last state I mentioned is so constricted, so narrow that anything introduced beyond it is fearsome. If introduced too soon, it's devastating. And this is where we encounter many of the odd and harmful effects of meditation practice. For this constricted person, the universe looks like a tiny pinpoint of light. Introduce a light as bright as the sun, and that person may go crazy, and sometimes does. So, excuse me. I shared this because I think it helps both um, and so basically what Joko is saying in this chapter is, so please slow down, be patient, you know, don't try to blow through everything. Work on slowly, gradually softening those places where we hold, where we're attached. Become gradually more open to yourself, to your own mind, your own body, and those around you. And over time, this process will slowly, organically unfold instead of rushing it, trying to force it with either certain kind of practice or I would say also with certain kinds of drugs. And then who knows what might happen. Um, so she advocated a kind of approach to practice that really de-emphasized the importance of these experiences. Because she saw too often the detrimental effects of people approaching practice in a goal-oriented way and trying to rush and get these kinds of experiences. There's a documentary about Joko Beck um, that's on YouTube. Um, and I can actually share it again, I think on the blog, I'll find it and share it. I shared it a long time ago. But there's a, a one of her students on the on the documentary says this just describes like she had a, a big awakening experience and really wanted to tell Joko about it. And Joko just said, I don't care. <laughs> you know, like, and then finally, after she bugged her for so much, she said, she listened to her and said, Okay, 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 enough. 
no, let's like let's get back to the real practice, okay? Um, and so, um, you know, I've actually I've actually was talking with someone earlier today about about um, psychedelics, and I was thinking it's interesting. I'm just I'm actually kind of heartened by the research that's going on. I'm, I'm in case it, you have any suspicion of this, I'm not anti-drug, definitely not anti-psychedelic, um, and. Um, and if it hadn't been for those experiences, I don't think I would have found my way to Zen practice. But what's interesting is that seeing all the research going on around these things now, I have no temptation to try them again. Not because I'm worried about what they would do, um, and not because I think they're bad, because actually I really fully buy into this vision of practice, which is about the slow, gradual softening of our self um, and our attachments and our opening to life. And so to kind of get a nice hit of this like peak experience of opening, I feel like would actually just simply sort of like reinstall this goal-oriented picture of practice, which is what I started with but it took a long years to get over. And that's, I think, um, there, is no, there is no need to rush. And I think there's a lot of reasons not to. So, um, so back to the Harper's piece for just a few more minutes, because um, I do want to give some time for, for thoughts and questions. I feel like, um, One of the things that I think I'm trying to offer in these Tuesday nights, but that people can get through study, through reading, through hearing other people talk about practice, and through your own slow process of undergoing practice and reflecting on it, is a way to, to frame what's going on, why the difficulties are there, how to understand them, how to understand the ways in which the self will crop up and try to resist in certain ways and how that resistance can take so many different forms over time and how the ultimate um, goal is not what it does for us, but what it can do, how we can better serve others. All of these, like there's a kind of like understanding, slow growth and understanding of the psychology of practice and the moral framework in which practice makes sense. And this is not anything that can be given or attained in one retreat. You know, um, the idea that you could get this, enough of this in a very short, intense hit, like that kind of retreat was, is I think, you know, just naive and delusional. And I wonder what the people who offer those retreats for people who have never done anything like you before. Um, I don't know. I just have my, I have my worries. Now, I met Willoughby Britton, who runs Cheetah House and is the psychologist who was quoted in the piece as being kind of fed up by meditation teachers who, um, who don't know how to handle difficult you know, um, difficulties that their students are experiencing. Um, and so 
I, I've read some of her work. I chatted with her when she came to Williams to give a talk. And, um, and in a lot of the cases that she describes, it's someone who latches on to a particular practice principle. And then it's almost as if the self that's practicing kind of just obsessively focuses on that one thing and tries to make that the center of the practice. Like for example, the point of practice is to feel equanimity. Well, someone interpret that as feeling no intense emotion, neither too much or too little, right? And um, so anytime this person felt any emergence of strong emotion, they would use this principle and manipulate their sort of experience to kind of quell the experience, to calm it. Um, and that's the person that ended up in the article feeling no affect, affective flattening, you know, who somehow ended up not being able to feel real love for their own children. But it's because they had taken this, you know, one idea about meditation practice and kind of latched onto it as the key. And then instead of having a holistic, you know, sense of what practice is about the complexity of it, um, just did that and then what ended up happening is like, it's almost like the ego used a particular practice idea to manipulate their own psychological experience. And it had a really negative effect on their mental well-being. And there are other examples like this where people will get some kind of superficial guidance and then just take it and run with it and end up in not so good places. So it's one of the reasons why um, I think it's really important to, um, you know, especially if you feel difficult things coming on, to be in conversation with someone who has had a lot of experience. Um, and then also to keep learning. You know, I think, like I said, a long time ago, I used to kind of wonder like, why do people go to Dharma talks? Why not just practice? And I think I've come to appreciate that actually people talks and reading are good because it enriches your sense of the complexity of what the practice life is about. Otherwise, it's too easy to think it's just this narrow thing, like just focusing on the breath, just never feeling intense emotion or something like that. There's so many subtleties. And there are also ways in which the practice needs to be altered depending on how it's going for you. Um, I'll stop with one example of a conversation I had with um, a person who was experiencing a real difficulty with practice, um, just to hammer this idea of the importance of conversation and continual learning. Um, so this person had done, you know, had, had practiced at a very traditional Japanese Zen center where they use both koan training and, and the kind of practice, this breath following, concentration practice and had experienced some very intense things early on, um, uh, like intense energy, um, like her head was on fire, um, and talked to the, tried to talk to the teachers there, but it was a big center and it was hard to get time. And um, they said, it's just makyo, it's just illusion. Just keep practicing. Um, and didn't really help. 
you know, and for years, I mean, decades, this person continued practicing with this difficulty. Um, and then I had a conversation with her, um, I don't know, a few years ago now, in which I was able to, you know, start to understand that there were certain misunderstandings about the nature of practice that were informing the way that she was approaching this experience. Um, and there were certain ways in which her awareness was being governed by, you know, attitudes that she had learned very young about how she shouldn't feel too much, shouldn't express too much, um, shouldn't feel too much pleasure, shouldn't, shouldn't just like, there are things that were happening that came out in conversation, slow, gradual conversation. Um, and I don't know how it eventually worked out because I didn't maintain close contact with this person reached out to have like a, you know, a few conversations, but then, you know, had been practicing on her own and, and has continued to do so. So I don't know exactly what happened, but it became clear to me that there were ways in which the negative experience she was having was being fed by certain blind, unconscious assumptions that were driving the way she was practicing that required conversation to be brought to light. And these are the kinds of conversations that one can have with a meditation teacher that, um, that I think someone like Megan really needed you know, and didn't have the benefit of, and also just didn't have the broader framework to understand what this path was all about. And so it makes sense that she would start to think about Jesus and God, because you're having these intense experiences and you do the best to make sense of them. So you bring into your experience, whatever frameworks are available to you. Um, and so there were just a lot of conversations that I think needed to happen and a lot of intensity that needed to be reduced in that situation. It may not have helped. I mean, you know, it's a very superficial glimpse we have of, of this particular case. But what I'm saying is the absence of any of those kind of interventions is somewhat shocking. When you think about what the setting that retreats like that are inviting, you know, they are inviting people to have incredibly intense experiences um, and then kind of leaving them on their own. So, um, okay, I'm kind of worried. I think um, I'm not sure how well what I've said holds together and I think maybe it doesn't, but I'll just stop here because I wanna see if there's any questions or things that people want to follow up on either just with a topic, the text, or perhaps with things I've said. So I'm sorry for the slightly meandering quality of some of what I said, but I'll pause here. There's always other evenings where I can revisit some of the stuff. So if there are questions, please, please ask. I have a feeling there are. I can't, if, I may not be able to see your hand if you're raising because I can't see all the box. Oh, now I can now. But um, more, is that a hand? Did you want to say something or no? No, okay. Marnie, did you want to say something? Um, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking of it, but I, I have been thinking um, 
you know, I guess I, I struggle. I, I, I glanced at the article and I struggle with any broad assumption that there's one thing that would, um, that could ruin someone's life like that. Like I really, I struggle with the, the, um, not so much the accusation, but the, like, this is the issue with meditation. It's like, no, this is the issue with like American culture. And this person wasn't getting support in all these ways. And so, um, yeah, I guess I, uh, I don't know. I just think about like the confluence of things that were happening for someone like her and for other people in her position. Um, that can't just, I don't think that is fairly just blamed on, on a negligent practice or a negligent support. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Yeah. I agree. And that's where I think some of the sensationalism comes from. Like, it's like, it's like, Oh, look, you know, um, and um, but I do, I do feel like it, it does point to the importance of um, not just better support, but also richer framing of these of of what it is a practice is about. You know, yeah. Yeah, it moves me to think about. Um, just like sharing what the experience is like more, like what is my experience like? What is other, what are other people experiencing? I don't do that so much um, in terms of meditation. I don't really talk about it. Um, just to, it would be interesting to know what other people are experiencing to maybe get a sense of that kind of like that, like broad scale of where you fall on it. I think it's one of the reasons why it's so important to have some time in these evenings where people can just share, you know? Um, and also um, I actually, I might send a, a, a link out about this. Um, so I asked students who I've taught meditation to at Williams to share some of their experiences. And I said, please share anonymously, you know, if you want, or it's okay if you want, um, because I know that many students who take my classes in which they see meditation is going to be offered come with deep misunderstandings about what they're gonna get. You know, they think it's gonna be so relaxing, it's gonna be so chill, you know, this or that. And um, and what I really, you know, encourage my students to say, cause I know, cause they've been through the experiences to say like, just tell, tell people what it's like. Don't, it's not about making it worse than it is, but also just, just be real about the difficulties that you had as you start practicing. Um, and I often actually at the beginning of a semester will give something like a trigger warning, you know, where, you know, I'll say it's like, you know, in a way, this whole class deserves a trigger warning because this is what Zen is about. It's about working with your triggers. It's about working with all your buttons. Um, and so I've actually, I've done that sometimes more intensely than others because I've also worried about priming people to have bad experiences. Like, if, you know, if you'd say it's going to be intense and hard, then you can, so it's like, it's, it's difficult, but I also want people to know that, um, you know, there are coping mechanisms that they have established in order to maybe get into a place like Williams, to survive at Williams as long as they have. Um, and that meditation practice may actually soften some of them and make it harder to cope in the ways they're used to. And that they should be prepared for a journey that's unpredictable if they actually embrace it. Yeah.
Any other questions or just thoughts on things you want to share? I like that you said um, something about letting up on the gas when mm. things get really hard. Because um, I think there is a tendency for people to think they should keep pushing if it's too hard or really stretch for those peak experiences. And I think, I think the way you said that is really uh, helpful. Yeah. And I said it because I believe it. Yeah. Um, totally. It's, um, and you know, like in that, at that, you know, often you get the sense, like, if it's hard, just keep pushing, you know, push through it. You know, the, the practice itself will take you through. And, and in some big picture sense, I don't disagree, but I think it needs to be done sensitively in a case by case basis. And, um, and in fact, for some people pushing hard is precisely their inner script. Like I'm never going to give up. I never fail. I'm always going to push. So what they think they are doing by practicing harder is actually getting more into their own ego, you know? Um, so it's, it's, that's what I mean by it's like, it's very case sensitive. You need to have a very, very good read on where a person is coming from to know whether what they need is a little push a little harder, or actually take the, take your foot off the gas. I think if you don't know, taking the foot off the gas is the safest general advice. Yeah. Okay, so I think just for the sake of time, it's good. we should call it an evening. Um, so, um, yeah, it's one of those evenings where I, I, I really did want to speak to this. Um, I, I, tr I tried my best. It feels a little disjointed, but um, I hope there's something that people got out of it. And if not, please feel free to reach out. If there's something especially that bothered you or that you really want to talk more about, I'm happy to chat. Um, uh, otherwise, could we sit for half a minute and then say good night? Excellent, thank you. All right. Thank you, everyone. Good to see you. Good night. Thank you, Bernie. Mm -hmm. Thank you.